So if you were here Wednesday night, uh, I got to teach Wednesday night. It was a huge blessing to be able to teach. If you're here Wednesday night, I regret to inform you that you'll be getting some of the same stuff that you got on Wednesday night because I honestly just can't get off this stuff. Um, we'll be looking at the first sermon that Jesus preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And I think if Jesus preached it, it's probably important, right? So uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 5. And as you're turning there, if you will stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read... Verse 1 through verse 11, but we won't get nowhere near verse 11. But I just want you to see the order that he is talking about these in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful to gather here today, Lord, to open your word. Lord, I pray that our hearts and our our minds would be open to hear you speak to us through your word. Father, I pray that you set any emotion I have to the side, Lord, and I would only preach the things that you have here laid in front of us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in the crowd who does not trust Jesus as their Savior today, Lord, today would be the day you would open their eyes. Father, we're thankful for your grace and your mercy on our lives, and we just continue to lift those up who are uh, going through sickness, through loss right now. Father, thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. You can be seated. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 are what is referred to as the Beatitudes. I'm sure you've probably seen that word if you've opened your Bible before and been in this part. Beatitudes is a Latin name referring to a state of happiness or bliss. This is basically Jesus' introduction into His sermon. 
And the first two verses out of it are going to take me probably the better half of an hour just to explain. That's how deep the things of God are. Jesus presents here the possibility of being happy. Who in here wants to be happy? Nobody is really going to say, I don't want to be happy, right? Happy is a good feeling. Jack's still raising his hand in the back. He wants to be happy. But this is not a happiness that is based on a circumstance. And if we're all honest, most of the time, when you're going through a hard time, happiness is as far away from you as it could possibly be. Usually it's when everything happens good in my life or when I, I get that job that I've been trying to get or I got that raise that makes me happy, right? But this is not the happiness that we're talking about here. This is, this is not a natural happiness. This is something that God can only give us. So it would be a divinely granted happiness. We can't obtain it ourselves. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. This phrase right here is the very first beatitude that Jesus talks about because this is the key to everything. If you're taking notes, write that down. This verse is the key to everything. Everything that follows, without this, this thing, without obtaining this, none of, the, none, of, none of the rest of it applies to us. There is a purpose to the order of these Beatitudes, like I said. Jesus does not put them in this order accidentally. The writer does not write them down in this order accidentally. The Holy Spirit led the writer to write them down in this exact order. So we look at the very first one and we say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What about if they're not poor in spirit? Theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. There is no one in heaven right now who is not poor in spirit, nor will there be anyone in heaven who goes that is not poor in spirit. So this is probably something we need to understand, probably something very... Important, we need to know what, is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And it's the basic characteristic of a Christian. All the other characteristics that he lists follow this. We will see that it really means an emptying. For something to be filled, first it has to be made empty. In a person's life, when they come in contact with the Gospel, when they hear the Gospel, when they understand the Gospel, when they believe the Gospel, there's basically two things that happen. Those who are in here that have been born again, you can probably attest to this. There is a lowering and then there's a raising up. There's conviction that always comes before conversion. The Gospel condemns us before it frees us. Before we go on, I'd like for you to see this same teaching in a parallel verse in Luke chapter 6, verse 20.
This is the, the same account, different writer. And most of your Bibles probably have the title Beatitudes as well. It says, and he, talking about Jesus here, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. If that's the only thing you've seen, what would be your first inclination? Blessed are people that are broke, right? Well, if that's the case, for many, many years, I was super blessed on Monday. I wasn't as blessed on Friday when I got paid, but by Monday, I was blessed. Couldn't be any more blessed because I was broke, right? But that's not what he means here. You could take that, you could take that and say, okay, well, that means blessed in spirit are the poor rather than blessed are the poor in spirit. But that's not what he says. There are actually teachings out there, and I, I believe a lot of them probably, I think it was the Catholic faith that I've seen it in the most, where they denounce their riches. They give everything away, and they think that makes them closer to God just by selling everything they had. There's no other act to it. Just get rid of all your riches because blessed are the poor. That's not what he means here. The person who doesn't have any money is no closer to the kingdom of God than the person who has money. We know that, right? Jesus is not talking about material things here. This phrase is dealing with poverty of spirit, which is basically the attitude we have towards ourselves. Ask yourself, what do I think about myself? How do I see myself? This is what he's talking about here. Not whether you have material things, not, not the things that we thank God for, our house, none of that stuff. How do I see myself? And this is the clear line in the sand that separates the Christian from the rest of the world. This is the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. This is the difference between the Christian and the natural man. The world says, believe in yourself. Be the best version of yourself. You need to realize how much power you have and show that to the entire world. That's the idea they sell, right? It's self-empowerment. Me, 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 me. But this says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's the exact opposite of what the world says. One of the old hymns written by Charles Wesley, it's called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Probably very few will know what I'm talking about, but there's a verse in there that says, just and, and holy, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness, false and full of sin, I am. Thou art of truth and grace. A man years later poked fun at that song. And he basically said, who in the right mind would go to a job interview and say to that person they want that job from, I am all unrighteousness, full of falsehood and sin am I. Who would do that? Nobody. 
But we're not talking about how we stand before men. We're talking about how we stand before God. That is what is important. This word poor here in the original language is pronounced tohas. It means to shrink or crouch. Lower yourself to the ground. It was normally used to describe the stance of a beggar. And a beggar back then, the way they stood was basically to get down in a corner somewhere and put one hand out and with the other hand, they covered their face because they were so ashamed of where they were at. Does that make sense? That this is the word that he uses? This is not the normal word for poverty in the Bible. This is something totally different. Being poor in spirit means we understand, we recognize how lost we would be, how hopeless, how helpless we are apart from Jesus. Being poor in spirit means that we see our spiritual poverty. We have complete dependence on God. It's not an outwardly act like the beggar. It's inwardly. It's an honest humility, not a pretend humility. It describes a person as Isaiah 66 2 says, All these things my hand, this is the Lord talking, all all these things my hand has made. And so all things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's the person that that Psalm 34, 18 describes. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You see a contrast of this. You want to know what the difference between a poor spirit and a prideful spirit looks like? Luke 18, starting in verse 9. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted Jesus and themselves that they were righteous. Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee was proud in spirit, wasn't he? 
Thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. And if you look, it's I, I, I. I did this. I do this. I'm not like him. I, me. It's me, me, me. But then you see the tax collector was poor in spirit. How do we know that? He was too ashamed to even look up. He wouldn't even get near the temple. He stood far off. And he beat his chest pleading for God to have mercy on his soul. That is somebody who is poor in spirit. And humility is the basic element of Christianity. You can remember the church in Laodicea. Kevin taught several weeks ago we were going through the churches in Revelation. You remember what the problem was with Laodicea? Jesus tells them in Revelation chapter 3, For you say, you Laodicea say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But what does Jesus say? You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. No one can receive the kingdom of heaven until they realize they are unworthy of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Being poor in spirit or humility is the first beatitude because without it, none of the others will follow. You can't have any of the other characteristics if this one is not there. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This life has its share of mourning, doesn't it? We live in a broken and cursed world, and it's, it's inescapable. You can't get away from it. But the mourning that Jesus is describing here is not what we would see as a typical mourning or grieving. It's not what we would expect Him to be talking about here. These are spiritual things He's talking about. The sorrow or mourning that Jesus is talking about here is the same sorrow and mourning that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. The morning that brings spiritual life and growth is a godly sorrow. And that sorrow is over our sins. A question to write down to yourself is, do I have godly sorrow for my sins? Do you know what I'm talking about? You remember when your eyes were opened to the Gospel. You remember, right? What was that feeling? It wasn't just tears of joy. It was, I see who I am before you. And I feel like garbage, like trash, because I have sinned against you. 
And I can't do anything but cry because I can't, I've got nothing to say for myself. That is godly sorrow. Now, since you have been saved, how many of us go every day and don't sin? Is our sin any less than it was before we were saved? It's paid for, no doubt. The past, the present, the future sins are paid for if you are a born-again Christian. But we're still sinning against God, right? I, find, I found in my life that I have came to a dangerous point at times where I took God's grace for granted. I thought it's paid for. I don't have to repent of all this. I mean, he's, He doesn't care. I'm saved, right? That's not the attitude we should have though. He's not any different after He saves us than before He saved us. We still sin against Him. We should still have godly sorrow the same way, probably even more. Because now we see how serious our sin is, right? When we were living in the world, it didn't matter until your eyes were open, did it? The Bible says... <clears throat> Job was blameless, upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil, right? Sounds like a pretty fine man. But you know, Job had a lesson to learn too. Only God, after God had taken or allowed Satan to take everything that Job had, everything, Everything but his wife. And what did his wife do for him? Was she comforting or did she tell him, die and curse God, right? And his friends, they were good, right? They were by his side. They told him, you're just sinning. Something's wrong in your life. And he had everything taken from him. So you think God would look down and, and comfort, but Job gets to a point where he questions God. What are you doing, right? Do you remember what God said? Nope, you can't remember it all because it's about this long. He taught Job a lesson out of a tornado in a storm. And it's just like, you read that and he's just driving Job in the ground. And you're like, oh man, he's taking a beating, right? But at the end of it all, what did Job say? Job 42, chapter... Er, Chapter 42, verses 5 through 6. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now I see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job seen who he was before God, right? I mean, he really seen who he was before God. God let him have it. And he couldn't do anything but repent and bow down in dust and ashes. That is being poor in spirit. That is godly sorrow. Happiness, happiness does not come through the act of mourning. It comes from the forgiveness of 
that God offers afterward. God's forgiveness for our sin creates that happiness. You know what that feels like, right? When you know you've been forgiven and that weight has been lifted, you can't do anything but smile. Wow! I'm not carrying this anymore. But you know, those who do not mourn over their sin, that happiness is locked out. Who doesn't want to be happy? We see commands like in James chapter 4. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. It would appear that a faithful child of God is constantly broken over their sinfulness. If we're never without sin, we should, it should look like we're constantly broken over our sin, right? It should be a constant repentance because I'm constantly sinning. Born-again Christians have been forgiven of every past sin, every present sin, but that does not mean that we set our godly sorrow aside. It's the exact opposite. We should see our sin even more for what it is now and have even more sorrow. But the mourning over sin, I know when you hear that, immediately you think, well, I just, I'm just going to cry all day long then because I never, I never stopped sinning. It doesn't look like despair. Remember, what does it lead to? Comfort. Comfort is happiness. How do you have a happy life? You're constantly con confessing your sins, right? Because when I hold them in, God has not given me any comfort. You remember the Psalms that Kevin preached over? I just sit in despair. I don't even want to eat. I don't want to drink. I don't want to live knowing that I have sinned against Him, right? You just cry in agony. But this is not talking about that. This is saying you have an opportunity here to be comforted and be happy. How do you do it? Mourn over your sin. Mourn over your sin. Man, that is a big bug. <laughs> he was trying to take my notes off, I think. Yeah, the second part of that verse says it all. They shall be comforted. That's not talking about a comfort that comes at the end of age. That's talking about a comfort right now. Yes, it will come to completion at the end of age. You will be comforted for eternity at the end of age when you stand face to face with God. But as of right now, this tells me that I have something to do, right? If I sin, I have godly sorrow over my sin. I repent and I shall be comforted every single time. So, one of the questions I wrote down here, how or what can keep us from having godly sorrow? How about the love of sin in general? Y'all know what I'm talking about. That sin that you hold on to so tight 
because you love it more than you care about the seriousness of it. You just cling to it. You can't let go of it. That's what the love of sin is. We've all felt that at some point in our life. Or how about putting yourself outside of God's grace? Or believing there is no hope for you whatsoever? Anybody ever been there? He can't help me. I'm too far gone, right? Jeremiah chapter 18. God is saying here, but they say that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his heart. This is the person that believes that they are just destined to sin. That's who I am. I'm just destined to sin and God has given up on me, so I'm going to give up on God. That's a dangerous place to be. And procrastination is just as foolish and dangerous as that is. How many people do you know of, or have you been there yourself and you say, um, maybe one day I'll get my life right with God. Maybe one day I'll let that sin go, but not right now. But what warning do we get in James chapter 4? He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade, make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, or some version says a vapor, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How do we have time to mess around with that? If you have sin today, if you don't know Jesus today, how do you have time to mess around with that? Are you promised tomorrow? Are you promised to walk out that door? None of us are. None of us. Why put it off? And then I ask the question, what helps us live a life of repentance? This right here. You want to know what it feels like to live in sin? You want to know how dangerous it is? You want to know the agony? Read this book right here because there is plenty, plenty of people in here that are in your same shoes right now. Whether you're living in sin, whether you're confessing your sin, you will see every type of person in this book. And you learn. Wisdom is learning from something, right? Sometimes wisdom is learning from your own mistakes, but sometimes wisdom is looking at something and saying, okay, he ended up here. What, why do I think I'm not going to if I don't confess my sin? If I don't let this go now? I am not long-winded. So in closing, I'm going to offer an invitation and just basically say this. Those who enter the kingdom are those who are spiritually bankrupt. It's those who have godly sorrow over their sins. And once they're in that kingdom, it doesn't change. You still are spiritually bankrupt. You still have godly sorrow over your sins. Because you know that when you confess, <clears throat> confess those sins, comfort is on the way. And true happiness comes from that comfort. If that's not you, if you don't feel this, 
then there's bad news. You're not in the kingdom. But God invites us to be in that kingdom. God invites you to be a mourner. God invites you to have a broken spirit. God invites you to realize that you have nothing. So reach out today for the mercy of God. It's only through His Son and the sacrifice that He paid the penalty for our sins. That's the only way. There is no other way.